chapter 18. We'll be in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look this morning at verses 11 through 14. If you found your way there, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I come to you asking for your help today. Lord, you know more than I do how much help that I need. And Father, as we look at your word, we know that your word is truth, that it is a precious gift to us that shows us who you are and what you have done and what you will do. And so Lord, I ask more than anything that we would go away today after hearing your word, adoring you more, desiring to give you more glory with our lives and having a greater heart of worship and affection for you than we do in this moment. I ask, Lord, that you would put a guard over my mouth that I would only say things that are helpful and profitable to those who hear and nothing that would be confusing or uh, discouraging from, from honoring you, but only things which honor and please you, that you would be glorified and magnified in this time. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is Becoming the Greatest Leader. Last week we titled the message uh, Becoming the Greatest Disciple. And as Chris and I uh, were discussing earlier, uh, Matthew 18 is a little challenging to preach because really you could do the entire chapter as a sermon. This is this is one very long teaching that Jesus is giving, and so we're trying to break it up a little bit so that we can explain a little bit more of what's going on. But really, we have to look at the big picture of all of Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to discuss uh, later on today, there's a, a few verses in here that many of you may be familiar with that you hear used, and specifically used out of context, where someone will just quote a specific verse, and they're not looking at that verse in the context of chapter 18. And we don't want to do that because Jesus didn't just say one verse. He said all of this. And so we want to understand what he meant uh, when he said not just how, uh, how, how we feel about it. So Jesus is, you remember having this conversation with his disciples. And again, get the big picture in your mind of what's going on in, in the Gospel of Matthew here. Jesus has done this public ministry where he's done these miracles. He's preached about the kingdom of heaven. He's talked about faith. And then he has revealed his plan to his disciples that he's going to go and suffer and die in Jerusalem. And during this time, they are working their way back to Jerusalem. So they know that the end of Jesus' uh, ministry is coming. And then he is revealing more and more of himself as time goes on. And now, in chapter 18, the focus is coming more away from Jesus as, as Messiah and more towards the apostles as what they have to do when Jesus is gone. He's giving them instructions and saying, now you know who I am. You know what my plan is, 
now I need to equip you as my apostles so that you can lead my people uh, in my absence. And so he's teaching them last week how to become the greatest disciple, and this week he's teaching them how to become the greatest leader. Jesus says last week that becoming the greatest disciple means that you're putting others before yourself. You're humbling yourself, which is the opposite of what the disciples were doing. So he used this as a teaching moment. Today we're going to see that Jesus is saying becoming the greatest leader means stepping up to protect those who go astray. These are two qualities that he wants his disciples to have. So the first thing I want you to notice in the text here is in verse 11, and that's the strategy. What is Jesus' strategy here? For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, we're going to do a little Bible college lesson here because if you're reading from the King James Version or the New King James Version, you're going to notice that verse 11 is not there. And when we sit up to read it, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, what is he reading out of? And uh, if you're reading an English Standard Version, you'll notice that you'll have a footnote at the bottom that will mention verse 11, but that's not going to be in the main part of your text either. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, and if you're reading a New American Standard, you'll notice that verse 11 is there, but it has brackets on the front and back end of the verse. So I, t I, went, I went into this a little bit with my growth group a few weeks ago when we ran into this before, but I want to explain just, to, just briefly to you why this is so that you, so that you have understanding about uh, what's going on. The short answer is this. Uh, the, the way that we have our Bible today is by a collection of fragments of the Bible. So many of you have heard of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the 80s. That was a huge archaeological discovery. They actually just discovered some more a few weeks ago. And so it's still happening. And so we, somebody did not go in a cave somewhere and find a bound book that has all 66 books of the Bible completed, written by all of the original writers. That doesn't exist. And so the way that God has given us the Bible is he's given us thousands upon thousands of copies of the Bible, of these books, and their various fragments. Some of them might be an entire book. Some of them might be several books. Some of them may just be a chapter. Some of them might be a verse. Some of them may have been a, a, a large collection of things, but because they're hundreds and thousands of years old, they might have dried up or been broken or uh, an animal broke into it or those kind of things happen. So how do we get the 66 books of the Bible that we have today? Well, what we do is, is we take all of the copies that we have and we compare them to each other and say, uh, okay, this, here we have four different copies of the Gospel of Matthew from four different locations. Let's see how close they are to each other. And over 99% of the time, they're exactly the same. So if you find copies of the Gospel of Matthew that are exactly the same, that are hundreds of years apart from different locations in the world, there's a very, very, very good chance that you have exactly what Matthew did right. It may not have Matthew's signature on it, but it's statistically impossible for that to happen. It's a miracle that that can happen, that God preserves his word that way. So what does that have to do with our verse here? If, if you're reading from the King James Version or the New King James Version of the Bible, at the time that they were translating that version, they had about six manuscripts that they had put together of the Bible. So they had about six copies that they could look at and say, these are, these are identical copies. We're pretty sure that this is what it is. Today, in 2021, we have over 25,000 manuscripts that we use whenever we're putting a Bible translation together. 
So you, you could imagine that the difference between the six manuscripts that they had and a lot of those were like um, only a few centuries old compared to something like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I think was a, a first or second century. Um, there, there's a lot more copies that we have now, which is actually a good thing because it means that we're even more accurate than we could have been before of knowing exactly what they wrote. Now, the reason why verse 11 is uh, bracketed or in some cases is omitted in some translations is because it's what's called a textual variant. And what that means is, is when they look at all these 25,000 copies, some of the newer copies had this verse in them and some of the older copies don't have this verse in them. And so what does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that we don't have as high of a level of accuracy on this particular verse being in Matthew as we do with the other verses. So the reason why your other verses aren't bracketed is because out of those 25,000, they, they basically all agree on exactly what you're reading there. There's a few verses here and there where some manuscripts may not have a verse or they may have an extra verse. And so that's bracketed in the New American Standard to let you know that, hey, uh, this verse is here, but there are some manuscripts that, do, that don't have that verse. Now, verse 12, right after that, all of them have it. So, so there's no question about it. And so it's simply information to let the reader know in the process of the science of bringing this Bible together and bringing this translation together, what do they do? So now, for instance, in the English Standard Version, they put that in the footnotes, and that's their way of indicating to you that uh, this verse is, is here in some manuscripts. Your, your Bible may even say that on the bottom. It might have a little note that says some later manuscripts include this phrase. So I want to explain that because if, if you're reading this morning out of a King James Version or a New King James or an ESV, you might be wondering what in the world's going on uh, with this verse, and that's the reason why. So what do the scholars have to say? Basically, what the scholars have to say about verse 11 is that they think that probably when some of uh, the manuscripts that they have that are later, they were probably trying to harmonize the Gospels, which is when you take them and you organize them the same way so that they're telling the same story. So you can actually go out to a Bible bookstore or something like that and buy what's called a harmony of the Gospels where they basically lay out Matthew, Mark, and Luke side by side and they rearrange the stories so that it's the same stories. And we've talked about this going through Matthew that a lot of the stories, for instance, this story that we're reading here is in chapter 18 of Matthew, but it's in chapter 19 of Luke. And that just depends on the way that the writer was trying to tell his story. So a lot of scholars think that this Matthew 18 verse 11 is actually uh, Luke 19.10 which if you read Luke 19.10 says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, which most of us have heard. So what they're thinking is, is in some of those manuscripts, as they were putting these collections of the Gospels together, they may have included from memory or something else that passage in Luke right here in this verse. Now, does that mean that the Bible is not true and we can't trust it? No, it actually means that we have way more, thousands, thousands of more copies of the Bible ensuring the accuracy of what we read than any other book in history. Um, a fra uh, if you were in school and you read uh, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, which are some of the most famous works in history, we have like a handful of manuscripts of that to even know that it exists. So there's a much higher likelihood that the Bible is close to 100% accurate than any other book that we have because we have so many thousands of identical copies over periods of hundreds of years in completely different countries. And only God can make something like that happen. So I, wanna, I just want to explain that real quick so that we know the, the history behind that. And I'm happy to talk to you or answer questions about that after we're done today. But what I want you to see in that verse, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost, is the strategy that Jesus has. 
So uh, Jesus did not come. This is what his strategy was not. Jesus did not come to provide moral teaching. Jesus was not a good moral teacher. This was not his purpose is to say, I want everybody to be nice to each other. I want everybody to be along, to get along. It, it, it pleases God for us all to be in harmony together and whatever pathway gets you to heaven and whatever that is in your heart, as long as you follow your heart, you'll be okay. This is not the things that Jesus taught. So he didn't come to provide moral teaching. Jesus did not come to reign over the nation of Israel. He made that clear. My kingdom is not of this world. And they kept asking him, when are you going to set up your earthly kingdom? And he keeps telling them, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not here to overthrow the Romans. That is not my purpose. That was not his strategy. Jesus also did not come to give us a chance at redemption. Uh, Contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church and other uh, groups may teach, uh, Jesus did not die on the cross to make salvation possible for the one who believes. Uh, Jesus did not say on the cross, it is now possible. He said, it is finished. In other words, the work is accomplished the debt is paid in full. If God, in, in the courtroom of heaven, if God prosecutes and declares someone guilty that Jesus has died for, he has committed double jeopardy. God is unjust and he has sinned against his own law. But because he is just, he will never declare anyone guilty whose sin debt has been paid for. And that, and that is the good news. So Jesus did not come to try to save his people. That's not what he did. He came to save them. He came to accomplish a specific purpose that his father had laid out of, I have prepared a bride for you. You are going to go and you are going to purchase that bride and I will prepare her and you will be together one day. This is is the strategy that Jesus had. What does that strategy look like? There's a couple passages. If you have your Bible, we're going to read several passages. I hope that's okay with you guys. We read the Bible here. We're going to read some Bible today because uh, the Holy Spirit says things a lot better than I can anyways. So turn to Numbers chapter 21 in your Bible. And, and we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to demonstrate to you this strategy in just a couple passages. Now, it's all throughout the Bible. We know that. But I want to show you two examples that are really clear examples of, of what Jesus' strategy is. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. So Numbers 21, look at verses 6 through 9 there. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, So that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked on the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay? So there's a bronze serpent here. If you look on the bronze serpent, then you will live. Now, look at John chapter 3. This is a passage many of us are familiar with. John chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus here. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
Now, many of us have heard John 3.16, but I want you to understand the context of that conversation of God commanded them. You have, you have been cursed by this serpent. There is a serpent that has cursed the people in the Old Testament. How, how, how are they saved? By taking the symbol of what has cursed them, placing it up, and when they look on the symbol of what has cursed them, then they are delivered from the curse. This, Jesus is saying in the same way, the, the, the destruction of his body is symbolic of our sin, of the curse of sin, and that when we look upon what the curse of sin looks like lifted up, we are set free and we are healed and we are made whole in the same way by looking on Christ in faith and recognizing he is afflicted for me in the same way that they looked on the bronze serpent, that the bronze serpent was their affliction. So this is the strategy that Jesus is saying here. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That is his strategy. The second thing I want you to see is the search. Look at verse number 12 there. Jesus, again, is talking to his disciples, and he says, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? Let's talk just for a second about uh, the illustration. So as far as we know, none of the disciples that he's talking to were shepherds as a career. They were tax collectors. They were fishermen, different tradesmen. As far as we know, none of them were shepherds. But culturally, they understood how shepherds worked. Shepherd was a common job, and so they could relate to this. So what does this mean? Well, a lot of times the villages would have basically a village sheep herd, and the shepherd's job was to work together as a team to care for the sheep, essentially for the whole village. There was basically a flock that they used the wool for for their garments, they used the meat for, and the shepherd's jobs were to tend to that flock basically on behalf of the community. And the way that the, way that the train is laid out there is that there's these valleys, and then there's ridges that go along the valleys, and the ridges have all the grass on them. And so they would bring the, the flock of sheep up onto the ridges, and the shepherds would care for them. But occasionally, a sheep would start grazing and wander off, and it would end up in a cave, or maybe it would fall down a cliff, or it would get stuck somewhere. And if the shepherd didn't go and rescue that sheep, it would die, because sheep are really dumb, and they don't know how to find their way back, or they get themselves into a situation that they can't get themselves out of, which is, again, why Jesus refers to us as sheep very often. So the shepherd must go and get them. And this was so extreme that the community expected if the shepherd was not able to bring the sheep back alive, it had to either bring back fur or bones from the sheep to prove that they did everything that they could to bring that sheep back as evidence that I didn't just let it go on behalf of the community. I made sure that I did everything that I could to bring this sheep back. And so they would bring back evidence for it. Now, some of you in here don't, don't have children, or maybe you just have a couple children, and so you don't know what this is like. But for, for me, as a father of six children, I, I was asking my kids about this story. And I said, you know, what do you guys think about this? Or what comes to your mind? How, how can you relate to this? And my daughter Annie said, oh, this reminds me of something that just happened like a week ago. So what happened a week ago is usually on my day off, I cook a big family breakfast, and we have a big family breakfast. Um, and so we all sit down to the table, and we have this, you know, we've got waffles, and we've got bacon and eggs and the whole deal. And we sit down, and everybody's there except my daughter Sailor. She's not there. And so we think, okay, well, maybe she didn't get up yet. Now, if you're in a house that only has a couple kids, you kind of know whether they're up or not. If you've got eight people in the house, sometimes I don't know where they are. Don't tell anybody, but um, I kind of try. They have to kind of fend for themselves sometimes. I'm, I'm hurting. It's different. So um, 
so Sailor doesn't come to the table. So we call up, right? Call up to her room. Sailor, it's time for breakfast. You know, everybody's here for breakfast. No response. So finally I send one of the kids up to the room. Go up and wake her up out of bed. She comes down. She's not in her room. I don't know where she is. And so we're thinking, okay, something's not right. This is early morning. They're probably not playing outside. So Rebecca and I get this look on our face, and the kids can tell, like, oh, this is not good, right? So they get, they get this look on our face, and, and we kind of leap up and just start scouring the house, right? Mom and dad, all the kids, we're yelling for, where are you at? We're looking in all the closets, and we're thinking, something is not right. This is not okay. She's probably in danger, right? This is the response. And we all come back, and as time goes on, we're just getting more and more anxious, more and more worked up about the whole situation, and come to find out she had fallen asleep on the couch in the next room over and just didn't hear us yelling, apparently, and just kind of moseys in, you know, and comes to the table and sits down to eat breakfast while we're all, you know, having a heart attack. And so Annie reminded me of this, and she said, Daddy, that's what this story reminds me like, is she was kind of like that sheep that was lost, and everybody was freaking out about where the sheep was trying to find the sheep. That's kind of how Sailor is. She's kind of like that sheep. And uh, I said, you know what, that's, that's a good example. I should talk to my kids uh, more often about the Bible. Um, so that's essentially what's going on in this passage. And so there, why is there such a concern here? Why, why is Jesus saying the shepherds should be concerned about this? It's because lost sheep end up dead. That, that's what happens to them when they get lost. It's not a matter of, you know, we've all had like a dog or something like that that ran off for a while and you get concerned. You're like, well, they know how to find their way home. Sheep doesn't know how to do that. And chances are, if it hasn't come back, it's got itself in some kind of situation that it can't get itself out of and it's going to have to have help. Otherwise, it's going to end up wandering off in a cave and getting eaten or just die and not know how to get out. That's why this is a serious concern for the shepherds. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says this, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. But if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So the wisdom in Ecclesiastes tells us it is not good for us to be alone. As, as, as sheep, as followers of Christ, it is not good for us to be alone. If you've got your Bibles, again, turn to Hebrews t- chapter 10. We're going to read part of Hebrews chapter 10. I told you all we were going to read a lot of Bible today. Some, some of you have heard one of these verses a lot in the last year with COVID, but I want us, we're going to read 19 through 31 because I want us to really get the context here. So Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So why is there a concern for those who go astray? Because it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So we're not supposed to be alone. What does this mean? Contrary to popular belief, you need to be in a local church. That's, that's part of what this means. Now we all know, we talk to people who say, well, you don't have to go to church to be, in a, uh, be a Christian. Well, that's true, but you will. You can't hide in this church. There's a reason why some people don't like churches like this, because you can't hide here. And that's good for you. It's good for you to not hide. It's good for you to be known. Because guess what happens? If you're in a local church where you're not known, where you don't know your pastor, where your pastor doesn't know you, doesn't talk to you, doesn't have a relationship with you, then you're going to be like this sheep that's going to wander away and nobody's coming after you. That's not the way that God has designed the church to work. We have to know one another. We have to be able to look around the room on Sunday morning and say, where's so-and-so? Are they okay? Is, is something wrong? I have, uh, I have family out today because, uh, because of sickness, and I've had multiple people come up to me, are they okay? I'm praying for them. I'm just checking, right? I'm not offended by that. You know why? Because somebody knew that my family exists. People here know what my children's names are. They have conversations with my wife during the week. If something's wrong with my family, I can't hide that from my church. My church knows, and that's a good thing for me to not be able to hide. We live in a culture where people want to go to church and hide, if you're straying from the fold, from the people of God, from the local church, by not attending church regularly, by avoiding a Sunday school class or a growth group, by holding on to unconfessed sin or bitterness, or because you don't want to be asked about your sin, then you need to repent. It's plain and simple. There are people in local churches, in this church and in other churches, who, are, who they, they, want, they want the benefit of going to church and feeling encouraged without having to be known. The fact is, you cannot be a biblical church where members do not know about each other's sin, where they're not confessing to each other, where they're not holding each other accountable, where they're not contacting each other, where they're, where they're not following up with each other. And we're going to see this later on in chapter 18 because if you think this is serious, it's just getting more serious. Jesus is telling his apostles here that you guys are like the shepherds, and if you see somebody going astray, you better go after that person and bring them back. Do everything that you can to bring them back. And if you can't bring them back, bring a bone or a piece of fur back to prove that you did. We practice that in this church. It's called church discipline, and it makes some people uncomfortable, but the reality is that's been the practice of healthy churches for the last 2,000 plus years because of things like this, where Jesus has said, people aren't allowed to just disappear from the church and go into a life of sin with no accountability. That's the reason why we have covenant church membership. We make a promise to each other here when we join this church 
that we're going to hold each other accountable, that we want to live godly lives. And let's be honest, we do want to live godly lives, but that doesn't always happen. That's what we just read. You remember the text last week? He said, woe to the world because of the stumbling blocks that are inevitable. We are all going to wander away. We're all going to be tempted to, to, there's a hundred reasons to not come to church on Sunday morning. There's a hundred reasons to not be involved in a group or a Sunday school class or a Bible study. There's a hundred reasons to not call that that uh, church member that's at home sick that that we're concerned about or go visit somebody. There's a hundred reasons to say, well, I, I can't serve in doing this kind of thing. Stumbling blocks, they're there. But the reason why we covenant together as a body of believers is you cannot be a member of Barberville Baptist Church if you're not saved. It is a requirement. We practice what's called regenerate church membership. You have to be saved to be a member of this church. And that sounds astonishing to some people, but the reality is that's not a requirement in the majority of churches in America. It is not a requirement for you to be a Christian to be a member of a church. We require that you have to have a testimony, not only of your words, but of your life, that you are actually a Christian. And if that testimony changes, then we exercise church discipline. Why? Because of exactly what Jesus is saying here, because we're all tempted. Pastors aren't exempt. Deacons aren't exempt. Sunday school teachers aren't exempt. We are all human beings, and there are constantly stumbling blocks in the world in front of us. And when we trip and we stumble, just like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, woe to the man who's by himself and doesn't have anybody to help him up. And you wonder why some people, they miss a week of church and then two weeks of church, and then they just go off into the abyss, and then you find out five years later, well, we're divorced, or he's an alcoholic, or the kids are rebellious, or whatever. Well, why did that happen? It's because they fell, and there was nobody to pick them up. And so we covenant together as a church, as church members, to say, we're not going to let that happen to each other. If we see somebody slipping and we come to them, we're not coming to them in judgment. We're not coming to them in condemnation. We're coming to them, as Jesus said, of, I don't want you to fall and have nobody there to help you. I want to help you. If we, shame on us if we have a church member that falls into sin because of addiction, because of divorce, because of whatever, and we didn't do anything about it. We have, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And we want to make sure that if somebody is a member of our church, that that is not a concern for them because they know, people know me well enough that if I'm not okay, somebody is going to hold me accountable. And if I confess my sin and repent and come back to the church, I'm going to be welcomed there and they're going to celebrate that. Don't end up like a sheep that's stuck out in the wilderness. It can happen to any of us. Don't, don't let yourself do that. And how do you do that? You do that by leaving the fold. If you stay in the fold, there's a reason why we do the things that we do here. There's a reason why we gather on Sunday morning. There's a reason why we have small groups in our homes. There's a reason why we do those things. Because we want to be known. Because we have to know each other. If one of my children is missing, I know about it and I'm concerned about it. If I didn't, I wouldn't be a good father. If we have a church member that's missing and you don't know about it and you're not concerned about it, then you're not a good church member. That's just the truth of it. This is our family. Many of us will die and will find out that there are family members that we were born into the family of that will not be there, but our church family will. Make sure that your eternal family is a priority in your life because these are the people that you're going to have to be with for eternity. The third thing I want you to see is the siding in verse 13. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So when the shepherd's going out and he sights the sheep, there, there they are, right? 
This can happen to us. That person you haven't seen at church in a couple of weeks and you're at the grocery store, there they are. They weren't in church on Sunday, but I found them, right? I, I, I found them. What do they do? They rejoice over that. Or when that person's gone for a while, I, I can't. some of you guys can understand this um, if you've been here for a long time. But man, the Sunday that I came a few months ago, when our older members that have been gone for a year, when they came back on Sunday morning, I mean, just the joy in my heart just to see them being able to come back to church. I mean, that was a, that was a moment that I remember of like, praise God. You know, I think about Miss Charlene. I know she's watching this right now, but, you know, as many health challenges as she had, she would be sitting in here right now if she could. I have no doubt about it. She's told us that. But the Sunday that she came, and she had every excuse not to come, way more excuses than any of us do, and she came because she felt like it was so important for her to be here. It just brought me so much joy to say, praise God that this one that was gone for a while has been able to come back, has, has been able to come back. And in the same way, he rejoices over it more over the, over the one than over the 99 which have gone astray. And so our response when there's sin in the church, and it happens, and it's going to happen, because guess what? We're all sinners here. When sin comes out in the church, instead of hiding it and ignoring it, we deal with it. We confront it for the good of the person. But you know what? When repentance comes, we need to celebrate. We don't need to hold that over that person forever. Just as, just as Brother Wesley played earlier, that's cast as far as the east is from the west, and that should be our response as a church. Of You know what? Uh, I've had members tell me this. They've come, they've come to the pastors before. Hey, we've got some sin in our life that we need to confess and we need to get some help with. That's happened to us before, and it's okay for you to do that, by the way. We want you to do that. It's good for you. And you know what my response is? I knew that you were a sinner when you joined our church. Now, I'm glad that you're confessing it and you're dealing with it, but the fact is, I'm not surprised when somebody comes and says there's sin in my life, because guess what? There's sin in my life, too. And I have to confess it to others and deal with it. And so we need to have an understanding of, you know what? Uh, we should celebrate when somebody confesses sin and repents, because they are being set free from the power of sin in their life. Of Praise God, this person's closer to Jesus than they've ever been in their life. That's something to celebrate. Even in the midst of that sin and that brokenness, even in the midst of a long road maybe ahead of them, We've had people do that in this church. We've had people publicly confess sin in this church before. And you know what? It was powerful in their life. God poured out his power in that person's life. Why? Because his word says if we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we will be healed. So we're not Roman Catholics. You don't have to go to a priest. Well, actually, you do have to go to a priest and confess your sins, but he's at the right hand of the Father right now. You don't have to go to a building and confess sins to a man who says that he's a priest. But we do need to confess our sins. And sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we're like, well, I don't need to go to anybody and confess. And again, well, no, you don't need, you, you don't have to, but you probably should because it's good for you. Because guess what? The enemy uses what's in the dark. When you bring things into the light, you break the, the curse of sin, the power of sin. The devil can't hold confessed sin over a person anymore. He only, he only works with what's in the dark. So the leader's heart here. This shepherd is more for those who are in danger for them to be safe than it is for the ones who are safe to be in danger. Why? Because, again, without accountability, you are in danger. Why? I can tell you as, as your pastors, we spend more time in prayer and conversation about the ones who aren't here than the ones who are. Why? Because if you're here, if you're in a group, if you're confessing your sin, if you have real relationships in the church, you're not in danger. You're okay because you have that accountability. 
the Holy Spirit is going to use that in your life to grow you. But who's the one that's in danger? The one that nobody's heard from? The one that uh, is, is avoiding talking to people or they're just having small talk and they're not really getting into the issues that are going on? Those are the ones that are in danger. Those are the ones that we have to give attention. And it's not just the pastors. It's the whole church of, is this person okay? What can I do to help this person? Even if it's just prayer, I'm going to commit to praying that God's going to work in this person's life, that he's going to bring them back into the fold. When you see somebody who's missing, okay, if you're a church member today, you have a basket on the front, and it's got T-shirts and stickers and fun things like that. Another thing that it's got is a membership directory. Look at that membership directory this afternoon and ask you, how many of these people do I not know? How many of these people have I never had a conversation with, or I don't know their story, or I've never seen them at church? It should bo- that should bother you. This is not a very large church. It should bother you when you see a name on there and say, I, I don't know who this person is. I've never met this person. It should bother you enough to contact that person because guess what? Their contact information is on there too. And send them a text message or a card or go by and visit and just say, hey, we haven't met yet, but we're in church together and I just wanted to say hi and introduce myself and how can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Uh, let's share a meal together. Let's get coffee together. That's, that's, what should, that's what should be happening. If there's somebody on there that you don't know, it's your responsibility to know who that person is. So the way that we describe the way that our church is organized here is that we are an elder-led, congregationally affirmed, and deacon-served church. Well, what does that mean? That means that the spiritual direction of the church, not what light bulbs we're buying or, you know, or what kind of things are in the bathroom, but the spiritual direction of the church is led by elders. There are pastors that come together, that pray, that seek God's word, that try to structure the church biblically, that try to lead the church to become more biblical as time goes on, that try to faithfully teach God's word to disciple and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the elders are the spiritual leadership of the church. We are congregationally affirmed. What does that mean? In a nutshell, it means we're Baptist. But part of what that means is, is that we believe that membership means something. That if you're a church member, you have a say in what goes on in the local church, including who your leaders are, uh, what activities and things are going on, how the money is used in the church, who goes into membership and who comes out of membership. Those are responsibilities and authority that you have based on God's word as a church member. This is the reason why when we have members meetings, it's important for members to be there because members have to make decisions about the church. This church is not run by pastors. It is led spiritually by pastors, but a lot of the business and the affairs of the church and the things that go on, the ones that show up to the meetings and vote are the ones who have authority over the direction of the church. And so it's important for them to be involved. And so we need to consider this. When a person's coming into membership, do I know this person? We give you plenty of time when you join this church uh, for people to get to know who you are. The same thing if we have to remove someone from membership. Well, what is this person's situation? Do I know them? Have I personally contacted them about whatever the reason is, whether that's they're moving or whether it's a sin issue? Have, have I made an effort as a member? Because I, I am accountable for God, before God to make a vote about this person, of something I'm saying about this person. Am I taking that responsibility seriously as a church member? And then we're a deacon-serve church. And so contrary to a lot of Southern Baptist churches in our area, the deacons do not run the church here. And again, the pastors do not run all of the church here. We all, as members, make decisions together. The deacon's responsibility, biblically, is to serve the church. You're sitting in a clean pew this morning because a deacon 
and other members in the church are serving you by providing you a clean facility this morning. There's uh, so many things that happen behind the scenes in the church that most people don't see of paperwork and errands that have to be run and, and conversations that have to be had and things that need to be organized that your deacons do all the time that are serving you that you probably don't even know about. But we are an elder-led, congregationally affirmed, and deacon-served church. And so I, I say that to say, if you're a church member this morning, you have authority in this church from God, and you have responsibility. And when someone goes straying, it's not just the pastors that need to chase that person down and find out what's going on with them. Because guess what? If that person strays too far, the elders are going to come to you in a members meeting and say, this person, the testimony of their life says that they're not a Christian and they can't be a member of this church anymore and you have to decide whether they are or not. The pastors don't decide that. You as members have to decide that. And so we, need, we all need to take that responsibility seriously. The last thing that I want you to see is the selection. Look in verse 14. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, many of us have heard this verse used out of context. And so I want to address that. There's a couple questions here. So is Jesus saying in this verse, when he says, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish, is Jesus saying here that all children automatically go to heaven? No. Now, am I saying that that means that all children don't automatically go to heaven? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is this verse is not about that. So when we look at the larger context of little ones here, what is he talking about? Remember, if you go back to, uh, to verses 6 and verses 10, he's using little ones to talk about the, the lowly ones, the humble ones, the immature ones that are in his kingdom. So he's talking about believers. So he's saying, it's not the will of your father that any one of these little ones, that any believers in the church, even if they're new believers, even if they're, they're uh, immature, they're babes in Christ, it is not your father's will that any of his that are in his church should, should be lost, should, should perish. That is what he's saying here in the context. So he's not talking about literal children here. He's talking about uh, new believers or weak believers, right? When you see that believer stumbling in their sin and, and you're wondering to yourself, you know, this person's making really bad decisions. You know, what is their situation? Are they even saved? Well, it's not our job. We don't know that person's soul. They're not going to have to stand before us and give an account. We, all we can do is observe their fruit. But what Jesus is saying here is, is if that person does belong to him, if they're one of his, it is not God's will that they should perish. And so there's a promise there that we as a church should be pursuing everyone who claims to be a Christian. We all know nominal Christians, right, because there's not a cost here. What I mean, what I mean by nominal Christian is, is that family member that says that they're a believer, but they never go to church, they don't read their Bible, they don't do anything. If we're going to take that person's word for it and say, you know what, your, your life doesn't confess that you're a Christian, but your mouth does, then we need to take this as a promise from God of if you truly belong to him, it's not his will that you should perish. So I'm going to hold you accountable to, to your confession because if the Holy Spirit of God truly is in you, he will grant you repentance and you will return to the church. Now, if we didn't think that the Holy Spirit was actually working in that person's life or that he had the power to draw someone, then we would just turn him loose and just say, well, I guess they were just fake. We don't get to make that decision. If that person confesses Jesus as Lord, even if their life doesn't, we have to assume based on what they've said that the Holy Spirit of God is in them and that when we confront them about sin, the response is going to be the response that all of us should have, which is brokenness and repentance and not rebellion. And uh, Pastor Chris is going to unpack this more next week, 
But then Jesus goes on and explains this process of how do you discern whether someone does have the Spirit of God working or not. Because when you confront them about their sin, their response to that is going to indicate whether the Holy Spirit is truly working in them or not. And so we're going to go, in, go into that more later. So, to be clear, this, uh, this verse is not talking about literal children. That's not what the verse is talking about. That's a whole other conversation. We can talk about that another time. But in the context of this verse, people will pull this out and say, well, all children automatically go to heaven because Jesus said so right here. Well, Jesus may have said things about children, but that's not specifically what he's talking about in this verse. The second thing is, is Jesus saying here that, that God desires for every single person to go to heaven? This is an important question because others will quote this, right? It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones for, will perish. Or another verse that we hear often is, it is, it is the, his desire that none should, per, should perish, but that all should come to repentance, okay? We hear this quoted a lot about the sovereignty of God and election, of, uh, of does God desire for every single person to go to heaven? And contrary to what some people have, have heard, the answer to that is no. And I want to read you a couple verses for that. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So the wicked, the wicked that hate God are not an accident. They're not a byproduct where God tried his best and somehow somebody slipped through the cracks and ended up in hell. The, pro, the writer of Proverbs here is saying that God created them for the day of evil. Daniel 4.35, this is Nebuchadnezzar after he was humbled by God, which is an awesome story if you go back and read it in Daniel chapter 4. If you want to understand the power of God, Daniel chapter 4 is a great chapter where God illustrates who he really is. This is what Nebuchadnezzar prophesied after God gave him his mind and his kingdom back, which he took away like that. After he gave him his mind and his kingdom back, Nebuchadnezzar says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? What does that mean? That means God does what he wants. That, that, is, that is the point of the Bible. That can make us uncomfortable sometimes because we don't always understand everything that he does or why he does it. Of course, we, he doesn't owe us an explanation for those things. But is this verse saying that it's not his desire that anyone should perish? Well, again, we have to look at the context of the verses, okay? Now, is it God's desire uh, that uh, every person should repent? Yes, the Bible says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. So it, it is 100% his desire that every human being on the earth repent and turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. However, the reason why that happens isn't because God can't do what he wants. It's because he has a specific plan. And so... Who are the little ones that he's talking about here again? He's talking about people in the fold, right? Little ones who are in the fold. In other words, new Christians, immature Christians, Christians who are stumbling in their sin. He's not talking about unbelievers in this passage. So when he says, it is not his will that any of these little ones should perish, he's not saying that no children will ever perish. He's not saying that no humans will ever perish because we know that that's not true. Jesus taught about, more about hell than anybody in the, in the Bible. What we know is, is that for his people, for, for his sheep, for his flock, his desire is that none of them should perish. Well, how do we know this? You can go and read John 10 and John 17. Both of those chapters explain a lot of it. But one of the things that Jesus said in his prayer to his father is, I have not lost any of those that you have given to me except the son of perdition, which was Judas, because that was part of God's plan. 
Other than that, Jesus is saying, I, I have kept every single one that you have given to me. And all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And, and I mean, I could just quote the, those whole two chapters. But go look at John chapter 10 and John chapter 17, which some people will say, well, you're taking that out of context. It's pretty hard to take an entire chapter of the Bible out of context. Um, but go and read those things. So he's talking about the weak and the lowly. And so when he's talking about the selection, the, the, the will of the Father who is in heaven is, is that none of these little ones should perish. There's a beautiful promise there, which means, guess what? You might be one of those little ones. Like we talked about last week, you might be stumbling in sin even today. There might be stumbling blocks set in the world that are in front of you where you're dealing with addiction, you're dealing with some kind of persistent sin that you're wrestling with. Maybe it's pride, maybe it's anger. It can, it's different things for all of us. And we all experience a variety of stumbling blocks. But the good news is, if you're in Christ this morning, it is not desi his desire that you should perish. And you have a promise from him that all that the Father gives him will come to him. And, and you're secure this morning. You're not secure because of your obedience. You're not secure because you missed all of the stumbling blocks. Although we try to by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are secure because of Christ's obedience. His perfect obedience has secured you a place in that flock. And guess what? As pastors, we are, we are going to fail in shepherding people. There are times where somebody is going to slip out of the church and we're going to fail to be able to, to bring that person back. There's going to be times where you, you're going to need us in your life and we're not going to be there for you. Not that we don't want to, but we are human men. There, there are going to be times that we're going to fail you. But there is a shepherd who always brings his sheep back, who will climb every mountain, who will go into a cave, who will, who will fight wolves and lions and all these other kind of things. And he will get every single one of his sheep. And he's not just going to bring bones and fur back. He is bringing the sheep back, even if he has to bring that sheep back from the dead. He, he will have all of his, and there's a beautiful promise there this morning for us who are in Christ. So in conclusion, last week we talked about how to become the greatest disciple. Well, how do we become the greatest leaders in Christ? Well, we adopt his strategy. What is his strategy? Evangelism. If Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, then we need to do the same thing. We need to be calling lost people to come to repentance, to come to Christ, and that's evangelism. So if you want to be a leader in the kingdom of God, you need to be sharing the gospel. We need to search like he does, which is church discipline, which is when you see somebody going astray, part of your leadership as a member is stepping up and asking questions. Are you okay? Is something going on in your life? How can I pray for you? How can I support you? Is there a need that you have that I can meet? Do you need, do you need a ride? Do you need somebody to sit with you? Do you need somebody to help you with kids? Do you need food? Do you need clothes? Do you need a place to stay? These are questions. None of those things should stop somebody from coming to church. We need to rejoice at repentance and restoration. That's what the shepherd does. That's what our, our when people confess sin, the response doesn't be like, well, I knew they weren't right. Or the response doesn't need to be, well, it's about time. We, we, all, we all knew how much of a wretch this person was. The response needs to be the response of the shepherd here. When he finds it, when that person comes, and I can, tell, I can tell you, I've seen this happen as a pastor here where somebody will come, and I knew they were struggling with something, but I didn't know all the details, and they come and they share and say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with, and it's time for me to get some help with this sin. I rejoice over that because I know that the Holy Spirit's about to do a work in that person's life, that he's going to do a powerful work in their life because they've come to that place of humility. God resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. And then last, we need to trust his selection. 
We need to trust that he knows what he's doing. We need to trust that, again, in this promise, that for all those who are in Christ, that he is going to complete the good work that he began in you. And so when we're sharing the gospel with somebody or when we see that person struggling in sin, instead of feeling like, well, I don't really know if I can confront that person or I've got my own issues, I'm not really one to go and help this person, we need to humble ourselves and say, you know what? God has promised that everyone that is his, that he, that he will complete a good work. And if I think that this person is, belongs to him, then I'm going to go and speak truth to them and trust that the Holy Spirit can do more than I can. I might not be able to convince that person to turn away from sin. I might not be able to get that stumbling block out of their life, but the Holy Spirit can do those things. And so I'm trusting that if God has truly saved them, that they, ha- they not only have been saved, but they are being saved and they will be saved. God completes the entire process. He doesn't half save anybody. And so there's a glorious promise there that if you're that person today and you're in sin and you've got the stumbling blocks, then, then repent and be free. Don't carry that burden anymore. God invites you to come to him. And if you see the one who is in sin, go to them in love and say, listen, G- Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And you don't look like you have a light yoke right now. It looks like there's a lot of stuff going on in your life. It looks like there's pain, there's suffering, there's anxieties. There, there's all these things that you're dealing with. And Jesus doesn't want that for you. He died, he died to set you free. And he whose son sets free is free indeed. We need to be preaching that to each other all the time. We need to be reminded of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, that you are that great shepherd, that, Lord, all of us in here were lost. All of us in here were, had wandered off somewhere and we were in danger and didn't even know it. And, Lord, you came for us. We weren't seeking you, but you were seeking us. We thank you for that, that you are, you are a wonderful shepherd that is so good, that protects us, that provides for us, that leads us into those green pastures as we read in the psalm. And Lord, we need more of that. We need more of your guidance in our lives. We need more of your power in our lives. We need more of your salvation in our lives. Lord, we, we thank you uh, that for those of us that are in Christ this morning, that we can have complete assurance of where we stand with you because of your son, Jesus. And yet, Lord, we need more and more grace each day because the world is full of stumbling blocks. I pray, Lord, for those who are stumbling this morning, Lord, that you would pick them up and that you would bring them back into the fold, that they would not be alone because we know that that's not your will. And as your word says here, Lord, your desire is not that any of those should perish. And so we're just asking you to do what you've said you wanted to do. And we know that you have the power to do it. For those here this morning, Lord, who are not yet in the fold, maybe, maybe they're so far from you that, that they don't even understand what we're talking about. Lord, you're going to have to give them understanding. Your Holy Spirit is going to have to reveal yourself to them. You're going to have to show them at, themselves as they are and you as you are so that they can see just how far away they are. If there's one here today that's in that situation, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would gloriously save them and give them a testimony for your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.